1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul begins this chapter by saying, when he came to you, when I came to you, he says in the first few words, Paul's arrival in the city of Corinth is described in Acts chapter 18. He just got done in Athens, and he goes over down uh, to the region of Achaia. And as he goes down there, and he, he goes to this great city of Corinth, and he meets a Christian couple there. Their name were Aquila and Priscilla. And they were tent makers, just like Paul. You know, nowadays in the modern missions movement, we say that somebody's a tent maker if they go abroad and support themselves with their own hands. And a lot of times we talk about Paul being a tent maker missionary. Well, he was literally a tent maker. He worked with leather and he made tents, and that's what he did to help support himself out in the mission field so that he wouldn't be a a burden to uh, the churches that he was ministering unto. So when Paul went there, he would associate with other people who were in the same trade, and Aquila and Priscilla were in the same trade as Paul. Now, Paul stayed in the city of Corinth for more than a year and a half, and he supported himself by working with tents and leather and such. But when he came there, it wasn't so much that he came there to work. He he describes the kind of ministry he did there. Take a look at verse 1 again. It says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom. Paul didn't come as a philosopher or a salesman. He came as a witness. He was declaring to them, look at verse 1, the testimony of God. Well, what does somebody do when they're declaring a testimony? They're a witness. You put somebody up on the witness stand in a court of law, they're going to give testimony. And that's what Paul was doing. He was giving testimony as a witness to what God had done. Now, I think this is fascinating because Paul says, listen, I wasn't there to dazzle them with great highfalutin words. I wasn't there to impress them with my skills of eloquence. Even though Paul was a man who could reason and debate persuasively, he didn't use that approach when it came to the preaching of the gospel. Paul made a conscious decision. Look at it there. In verse 2, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you. This was a conscious decision that Paul made to put the emphasis on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let me put it to you this way. Paul was not a salesman. He was an ambassador. You know the difference between a salesman and an ambassador. A salesman is somebody there trying to sell a point, trying to get you to do something. They want your response. Whatever you want to hear, they'll tell you. You know, does this car get great gas mileage? Oh, this car gets great gas mileage. Uh, will this car run a long time? Oh, this car run a long time. Whatever you want them to say, a salesman will sell to, to, to close the deal. But an ambassador is not like that way. An ambassador says, I've got a message from my king. Here it is. Here's the message. The ambassador doesn't have to care about how the people will receive it or any of those things. He's coming to deliver a message from a king, and Paul was an ambassador, not a salesman. I think we have to understand that in taking this approach, Paul understood that he was not catering to what the Corinthian church wanted. You know, especially in the city of Corinth and in the Greek culture that they had. 
They put a real value on the veneer of false rhetoric and thin thinking. Let me put it to you this way. Today, we have all different kinds of entertainment. You know, you could go to the movies, you could watch television, you could go to a a professional sports thing, you could do this, you could do that. Back in the ancient world, there wasn't the same kind of entertainment. And so you know what they would do for entertainment a lot of times? Is listen to a guy make a speech. And if you listen to people make enough speeches on enough subjects, you know, you, you start getting that scorecard mentality, right? You hold up a number after the speech. Well, that was fine eloquence there. My, he turned the point marvelously. What a phrase of speech, you know? And in that kind of culture, in that kind of setting, you become very concerned with the manner and the eloquence and the presentation and all this. Paul says, listen, I'm cutting through all of that. I didn't care about that. I was there to deliver a message. Paul was going to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, if a preacher is not careful he will get in the way of the gospel instead of being a servant of the gospel. I heard this just a few days ago. They say one of the greatest testimonies to the power and the truth of the word of God is that it has survived so many centuries of bad preaching. <laughs> well, you know, maybe that's true. And, and uh, there's another story I heard about a little girl who, who uh, one day she was at her church and, and there was a man who was much shorter than her normal pastor. Her normal pastor was a very tall man. And there was a man much shorter there in the pulpit. And for the first time, this little girl who always sat in the same seat in the church, she could see behind the pastor because he wasn't so tall and she could see this beautiful stained glass window with Jesus on it. And, and so when she saw this shorter man, she said, well, where's the man who usually stands so we can't see Jesus? Well, you know, that's what a lot of pastors are doing and what a lot of pulpits are doing. They're getting in the way with trying to be entertaining, with trying to have a a turn of of, uh, rhetoric or humor or whatever. No, Paul says, I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his focus. That was his passion. And everything else took a second place. Take a look at verse 3. I think it's very revealing. Paul says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. You know, when Paul stepped into the pulpit at Corinth, he wasn't brimming with self-confidence. And knowing his own need and knowing his own limitations, it made him weak and afraid. Yet this served a valuable purpose. It kept Paul from the poison of self-reliance. And that enabled God's strength to flow. Now, one Greek commentator says that the implication of verse 3 is that Paul's condition, as it's described there, weakness, fear, and much trembling, uh, one Greek commentator says that the implication is that this condition grew out of the circumstances in which he found himself in Corinth. His weakness, fear, and trembling could have been the result of an illness that he suffered while he was in Corinth. He could have been sick. You know, he could have just been up there knowing that he felt terrible, but he had to present the message. And so there he was. And he, you know, people would look at Paul. He looks terrible, they'd say. Look at it. It just looks awful. He's shaking up there. He's sweating, you know, like a faucet. He, he, he can't talk right. It's horrible. Listen. But the message is like gold. Other people think that it was because of the threat of persecution. And that made Paul afraid. And so he was, he was afraid there. But he preached nonetheless. Whatever the exact cause of it was, Paul was not an impressive spectacle in the city of Corinth. You know how it is sometimes. Some guys 
get behind the pulpit, and they just, you know, they just seem to master it. And then they have one of those voices, you know, one of those rich, deep, baritone voices, you know, that James Earl Jones kind of voice, you know. And it's even better if you can throw a little, you know, like English accent in it. And then you sound really smart, you know. And, and uh, boy, it's just like, wow, you know, I can listen to this guy all day. Paul wasn't like that. Paul got up there, and uh, at least in Corinth, you know, his voice was cracking. He was shaking up there. And, and there were things that were making him afraid, afraid to even step up there. But he did it nonetheless. Now notice verse 4. He says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, Paul is not rejecting the idea of persuasive preaching. Paul knew how to preach persuasively. I look at his sermon before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a persuasive sermon. That's just on fire. I mean, I want to accept the Lord all over again when I read Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 26. But Paul is rejecting any reliance on the preacher's ability to persuade with human wisdom. Look at verse 4. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. That's the key there. See, my friends, it's, it's that the gospel needs to be preached plainly and, and persuasively, but not with a persuasive reliance on human wisdom with crowd control techniques and, you know, little things that can be used to sort of manipulate an audience. Paul says, I wasn't there manipulating. I wasn't there playing all the the tricks that a speaker can play on people. No, I was there just giving the straight word of God. And it was, if you notice at the end of verse 4, in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul knew that it was the preacher's job to preach and it was the Holy Spirit's job to demonstrate the power. The preacher didn't have to get up there and, you know, demonstrate the power or, or try to get people to demonstrate the power. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Ladies and gentlemen, bottom line is this. Paul's preaching may not have been impressive or persuasive on a human level, but on a spiritual level, it had power. Now, why was it so important to Paul to present the gospel in this way? Look at verse 5. He says, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When a preaching strategy is centered around the wisdom of men, when it's centered around emotional response and entertainment and human personality, the preacher may get a response from the crowd, but he will not get lasting results for the kingdom of God. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the easiest thing in the world to get a response from a crowd. Tell funny stories. Uh, Tell heartwarming, gripping anecdotes. Go on with story after story or funny thing after funny. You can get a response from an audience. But my friends, a response is not the same as a result for the glory of God's kingdom. We have to take a look at the church today and say that many people use slick, entertaining or sometimes even deceptive means to lure people into the church. And then oftentimes they'll justify it by saying, hey, we're drawing them in and then winning them to Jesus. But my friends, the principle stands. What you draw them in with is what you draw them in, or excuse me, is what you draw them to. 
Whatever you've drawn them in with, that's what you're really drawing them to. How about if we decided to have a special night here at church or make it a Sunday morning? We'll call it Beer Sunday. (laughs) And free beer to everybody who shows up. And if we advertise it right, you think we might get a crowd here on a Sunday morning? (laughs) Well, my friends, you could get a crowd and you could get a response. But my friends, are you going to get any results for the kingdom of God? No, you see, it's the same way when churches do that on a much, much more subtle level. And people need to be drawn by the simple power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I think we need to soberly consider this. Paul says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, if someone's faith is in the wisdom of men and not in the power of God, if someone can be persuaded into the kingdom by human wisdom, then they can be persuaded out of the kingdom by human wisdom. My friends, that's why it's not relying on human wisdom at all. It's relying on the power of God. Now, Paul's going to go on and talk to us about the the wisdom of God in verse 6. He says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, Paul recognized that he was not appealing to human wisdom when he preached to the Corinthians. But just because Paul wouldn't cater to the Corinthian love of human wisdom, it doesn't mean that his message had no wisdom. It had wisdom. It had a vast wealth of wisdom. But that wisdom was only accessible to those who had a heart to receive it among those who are mature. Paul says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Now, who are the mature that Paul is talking to? And this is a very hotly debated question when you get into the commentators discussing this issue. Some of them will say that the mature in this verse refers to the saved and the unsaved. The mature are the saved, the unsaved are the immature. Other people think it it, it describes mature and immature believers. I'm more inclined to think that, my friends. Because most typically, when Paul uses that idea of maturity or immaturity, he's talking about people within the family of God, some of who are more mature spiritually than others. And friends, an immature person, an immature Christian, doesn't have the discernment all the time to know what is good to eat and what isn't. You know how a baby will stick anything in its mouth? Isn't that how it is with baby Christians sometimes? And that's how it is with big baby Christians. You know, Christians that should be more mature, but they aren't. They're like babies. They'll stick anything in their mouth. They don't have the discernment to say, this is good for me, this is not good for me. Now, the mature recognize God's wisdom, but notice who doesn't recognize God's wisdom. That's in verse 6. He says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about the rulers of this age? Did you notice how in verse 8, where he says, which none of the rulers of this age knew... For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What does Paul mean by the rulers of this age? Well, he could mean the political rulers of his day, or he could mean the demonic powers. 
you know, the Bible refers to demonic powers as the ruler of this world. Not in the ultimate sense, of course. The earth is the Lord and all that's within it. But there's sort of a sense in which Satan has a democratic sovereignty over this earth. Mankind has elected Satan to be his ruler. I, I believe that, that it's a tough issue. I mean, some people would say, well, he couldn't be talking about human rulers. Because it says here that had they known, excuse me, that he couldn't be talking about demonic rulers, I should say. Because it says, had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of Lords. They said the demons knew. But friends, I wonder if they did know. I wonder if at the moment when the crowd was being incited by demonic beings to shout out, crucify him, crucify him. And at that moment when Pilate sentenced Jesus to to go be crucified, when he was nailed to the cross and there was rejoicing in the councils of hell, I wonder at that moment if they understood, if they comprehended that they were sealing their own doom right at that moment. Because the Bible says that through the work of Jesus on the cross, that principalities and powers, that demonic uh, forces and beings have been disarmed and have been defeated in the life of those who live in light of the cross. And I believe if they had known that they were sealing their own doom by inciting the crucifixion, they wouldn't have done it. So you can make a debate, either the rulers of this age, in this context being a political rulers, or you can talk about being a spiritual rulers in the realms of darkness, but it really doesn't matter, because no matter who they are, their defeat is certain. Did you see verse 6? They're coming to nothing. Their day is over. The day of Jesus Christ is here. And the bottom line is this, is that the rulers of this age failed to recognize God's wisdom. Why did they fail to recognize it? Notice it in verse 7. He says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Now, I want you to underline that word mystery in your Bible. It's an important word. This word mystery is an important New Testament word. And when the Bible uses that word mystery, it doesn't mean it in the sense that we usually think of a mystery. When we think of a mystery, we typically think of something that nobody can figure out. Nobody knows, right? It's like a whodunit. Nobody knows. It's a mystery. We usually think that once you know the answer, it's not a mystery anymore. My friends, that is not the biblical understanding of what a mystery is. The biblical understanding of what a mystery is is that a mystery is something that you might not know or you might know. But the idea behind a mystery is that you would never have known it unless somebody revealed it to you. That's what a mystery is. So for Paul, a mystery can be known. It's just you would have never known it unless somebody revealed it to you. And so Paul says, now this mystery, this sacred secret, which could only be known by revelation, is the hidden wisdom that is now revealed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now can I just take a pause and go off on just a very brief digression there? Now, I love how the New Testament exalts the deity of Jesus Christ. And I could take you to chapter and verse that specifically and pointedly tells us that Jesus Christ is God and where that's the point of the passage to explain that. But I almost like even better these little throwaway lines that you find in the Bible. 
My friends, Paul is not trying to teach here specifically the deity of Jesus Christ. His heart is just taken up in writing, and he says at the end of verse 8, For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. My friends, who is the Lord of glory that he's speaking of? Jesus. My friends, are you telling me that Paul would call Jesus the Lord of glory and not believe he was God? My friends, that's a title that that God and God alone has. The Lord of glory. Some scholars consider the Lord of glory to be the loftiest title that Paul ever gave to Jesus. And it's certain proof that Paul regarded Jesus as God, the second person of the Trinity. It's inconceivable that Paul would have given this title to any lesser being than God himself. Well, this wisdom, which was uh, hidden to the rulers of this age... It's revealed to other people. Who's it revealed to? Take a look at verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now Paul says, quoting a passage here from Isaiah chapter 64, by the way, if you were inclined to turn back to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, and take a look at that passage, you'll see that it's not exactly as Paul quotes it here. Paul is paraphrasing that passage of Scripture to remind us that God's wisdom and that His plan is past our finding out on our own. Paul is just kind of saying, well, to use the language of Scripture, and then he's paraphrasing this passage from Isaiah 64. And then he goes on to say, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Many of you have heard that verse before, haven't you? Maybe you've heard it at a funeral. And they say, our dearly departed brother has gone on to glory. And we don't even know how great it'll be. My friends, on this side of eternity, we can't even tell how great heaven's glory will be because eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. My friends, many people believe that what Paul's speaking about is the lofty glory that awaits us in heaven. Well, let me tell you that it is true that we cannot comprehend the greatness of heaven. That is not what Paul's talking about here. Not at all. What Paul's talking to us about is something that has been revealed. Look at verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. Paul isn't talking about the glory of heaven. He's talking about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed to us through His Spirit. This glorious thing has been revealed by the gospel. And friends, I just want you to consider for a minute, if you could somehow go into some time machine and transport yourself before the time of Jesus Christ, and there you are before the time of Jesus, and you hear about the coming of the Messiah, and you hear about all the the great things, even if you could have understood it the best anybody could have understood at that time, you wouldn't even have known it at all. You couldn't have known how glorious it would have been under the new covenant. You would have had an inkling, a shadow, you wouldn't have known. You couldn't have comprehended fully. Could you imagine what David or Abraham or Moses would have done if they could have comprehended it fully? 
They, they could only see a shadow of it. They could only see a bit of it. And they trusted and were blessed by what they could know and what they could understand. But they didn't even know the whole of it, my friends. You see, Paul is communicating much the same message as in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, where he talks about the mystery of the church and how the church in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. My friends, before the life and ministry of Jesus, God's people had a vague understanding of the glory of His work and what it would do for His people, but they really didn't. They couldn't fully understand it ahead of time. But now we know it. We know it through His Spirit. Did you see that in verse 10? Paul reminds us that only the Holy Spirit can tell us about God and His wisdom. This knowledge is unattainable by human wisdom, by human investigation. You see, my friends, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. That's what Paul says in verses 10 and 11. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man, excuse me, knows the things of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. My friends, what we know about God in truth has been communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. It hasn't been uncovered by an investigative reporter. It hasn't been learned by the the studious work of the greatest scholars or the biggest minds. It's been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Because only the Spirit of God knows what's in God. Paul is arguing from a Greek philosophic premise here that like is only known by like. Let me explain it to you this way. That sounds kind of highfalutin, doesn't it? I'll explain it to you this way. You can guess what your dog is thinking, right? He's happy. He's sad. Oh, he misses the cat. Oh, this and that. You can guess what your your dog is thinking, but you really can't know what your dog is thinking unless he were to tell you, right? In the same way, we could guess what God is thinking and we could guess about God's wisdom, but we could never know it unless he told us. And by the way, might I offer a flip side of that? Do you wonder how God can really know you? Because he became one of you. He became one of us. That's why he can know you through and through. Not just with an intellectual knowledge, not just with like a brain scan kind of knowledge, but with an I've been there kind of knowledge. You know the difference between that, don't you? That's like going to the doctor and say, Doctor, I've got this terrible pain in my arm, and they do all these tests, and they do all these scans. Well, I can explain to you the exact nature of your problem and why the pain is there, and this and that. They give you all these charts and everything. You know, well, that's great, I suppose. But sometimes you just want somebody to say, Oh, I've had the same thing. Boy, that hurts. (laughs) That's the, I've been there, I know what's wrong with you. God knows both. He knows both the brain scan, so to speak, kind of knowledge of us, but he also knows the I've been there. God can know us, and we can know God by what the Holy Spirit reveals to us. In matter of fact, if you take a look at verse 10, it even says that we can know the deep things of God. 
And I think Paul is maybe making a subtle dig against the Corinthians here because the Corinthian Christians proudly thought that Paul was dealing in just the basics. Now, that's how arrogant the Corinthians were. You know, Paul comes and he just, he just teaches the same old sermon every time. It's just about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Come on, can't we get on to something else? Come on, Paul, get with the stick. You know, let's go on to the deep things of God. And Paul's saying, baby, my message is getting to the deep things of God. That's what the Holy Spirit's revealing. Now, let's go on here. Verse 12. It says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In other words, Paul says that we might know this Holy this Spirit, I should, excuse me, this wisdom comes by the Spirit who is from God, not the spirit of this world. And since every believer has received the spirit who is from God, every believer has access to the spiritual wisdom. Might I say this, though? This does not mean that every believer has equal spiritual wisdom. And it does not mean that we will all understand every spiritual mystery. It does mean that every believer can understand the basics of the Christian message, which is unattainable and undesirable by human wisdom. And Paul says in doing this, if you notice at the end of verse 13, he says, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, this is kind of a tough verse, because it can really be translated two different ways. You can translate it comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In other words, the idea might be of combining spiritual things with spiritual words, using words and concepts that are taught to us by the Holy Spirit. Or Paul might be speaking, and it could be translated this way also, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. You could also translate it that way, and and maybe Paul means it with that intention, that the only way a spiritual man can receive spiritual things is by the Holy Spirit of God. But now as he comes into verse 14, I want you to see this contrast that Paul begins to draw. It's, It's really quite striking. He says, but, in other words, in opposition, in contrast to the spiritual man who's receiving things from the Spirit of God, in contrast to that, verse 14 The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Yet he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." Let's go through those three verses, kind of piece by piece. Paul begins by saying, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The Greek word for natural in natural man refers to the psyche of a person. It refers to a materialist who lives as if there was nothing beyond this physical life. Can I just put it to you on a level maybe we can all easily understand? It's the kind of life that an animal lives. Think about your dog back home. Your dog does not have a spiritual life. Oh, I know you think your dog's saved, and he prays right along with you and all that. 
But I've got news for you. Your, your dog, in objective fact, really has no spiritual life to speak of. And cats, that's another matter. I mean, I talk about cats. And I don't know if cats are going to heaven, man. I'm, I'm kind of... But that's, we're not going to get into that. But when you talk about the kind of life that animals live, animals are just concerned with material things. A place to sleep, food, a place to scratch, water to drink. I mean, just material things. There is no higher life, spiritual life. Everything in an animal's life revolves around material things, things that you can touch, things that can be felt, things that can be uh, discerned or, or interacted with on a material level. And this is the level where we all start life. The life that is inherited from Adam is the natural man. The natural man is the unregenerate man, the unsaved man. That's how we're all born. And we have to deal with the material world, don't we? There's nothing inherently sinful with natural life. My friends, God is not displeased when you have to eat and sleep and work. God doesn't say, oh, I wish they wouldn't sleep or eat or work. I wish they'd just spend all day in prayer and Bible study with me. Oh, there they are sleeping again, you know. Every night they do that. God says, I'm so frustrated with them. If only they were more spiritual. They would never sleep. They'd just worship me all day long. My friends, God is not opposed to this material life that we have to live. He made us so that we have to interact with this material world. But life on this level, lived only on this level, is without spiritual insight. The natural man does not receive the things of God. As a matter of fact, spiritual things seem foolish to the natural man. Did you read it there in verse 14? For they are foolishness to him. I mean, to the natural man, he says, listen, why should I waste my time going to a Bible study when I could be out making money or having fun? That's the mentality of the natural man. The natural man does not want the things of God because he regards them as foolishness. What's more, he can't understand the things of God even if he wanted to. Because they're spiritually discerned. Look at the end of verse 14. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, it would be wrong to expect the natural man to see and value spiritual things. Just as it would be wrong to expect a corpse to see the material world. They can't do it. A dead body can't see. Someone who is dead spiritually can't see. So my friends, I want you to take a very practical point home from this. Are you trying to communicate spiritual things to a natural man? Or a natural woman, for that sake? Now, it's not wrong for you to try to do that. But may I point out that maybe you spend as much time talking to God about that person as you spend talking to that person about God. Because unless God does a work in their heart, they will never be able to comprehend, to discern what you're saying. The natural man, left to himself, has no sensitivity to God. Now, this also tells us something else. That when you see a person 
who maybe they're not a Christian yet, but you can see some spiritual discernment, some spiritual understanding coming up in their life, you can get pumped. Because God's doing a work in them, right? Yeah, go for it. God is doing a work in them. And if God wasn't doing a work in them, they couldn't receive it. Now, we know that the natural man is unsaved. But I think that the great tragedy of the church today is that too many Christians still think like natural men. They refuse to spiritually discern things. You know, when the church's concern is only for what works or what's the bottom line, then we're not spiritually discerning. We're thinking like the natural man, even though we ourselves might be saved. Now Paul goes on to say in verse 15, He who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Now please don't take this to say that Paul thinks that every Christian is above every criticism. Can you see the Corinthians later on when Paul's laying it on them, saying, Now Paul... We're spiritual, and you have no right to judge us. After all, that's what you said in your letter. That's not what Paul's talking about. The point is clear. No natural man is equipped to judge a spiritual man because they can't know the mind of the Lord, as Paul puts it in verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But Christians are different because Christians have the mind of Christ. They can spiritually discern. Now, let me just throw a couple quick points out before we jump right into chapter 3. First of all, uh, I'm on a mini theological campaign against a bumper sticker or a license plate frame that we see from time to time. And I know that people have all the right intentions, and I don't mean to slam anybody who may have that particular bumper sticker on their car right now. But it says, Christians aren't perfect They're just forgiven. Now, the big word that I have an objection to there is just. It kind of tells us that the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that one's forgiven and the other isn't. My friends, can't you see that Paul's telling us there's a huge difference between someone who's born again by the Spirit of God and someone who isn't? Someone who's born again by the Spirit of God has a level of spiritual life and discernment that the natural man does not have. Now, friends, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you're born again, you have that. Walk in it. Don't live like you don't have it. Don't live like a a pauper, like a poor person. When you have these spiritual riches, go out and live it. The second thing is simply this, and it's just one of those little, little throwaway lines here that Paul says. Did you see where Paul talks about the deity of Jesus Christ in verse 16? For who has known the mind of the Lord? And then what does he say at the end of the verse? The mind of Christ. Apparently for Paul it was the same thing, wasn't it? The mind of the Lord and the mind of Christ, same thing. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. Going on here, chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, please understand something very carefully as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul has already spoken to us about the natural man. We understand the natural man, right? Now he's speaking to us about a different kind of person, a carnal man. But I want you to notice, he says these people are part of the family of God. How does he begin? And I, 
brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Friends, could Paul call a non-Christian person a brother in this sense? No. Could Paul call them a babe in Christ in this sense? No. I just want to make it clear that verse 1, it's just so absolutely crystal clear that Paul is talking about Christians. There's no doubt about it. And yet he looks at them and he says, you are carnal. I need to talk to you as I would talk to a carnal person. What does it mean to be carnal? Well, carnal simply means fleshly. Guys like chili con carne. You know what that means. It means chili with meat, chili with flesh. It's the same word. Carnal and fleshly are the same thing. Now, again, I want to point out that there is a significant debate among Christians as if there can be such a thing as a carnal Christian. I was just listening to a radio program this last weekend, and they were being very vociferous and saying, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. If you're a carnal, there's no such animal. You're not a Christian at all if you're carnal. You're either spiritual or you're carnal. If you're carnal, you're not a Christian. It might be good theology, but it's not the Bible. Look at verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. And then he goes on. In verse 3, is he talking to the same people? I think he's talking to the same people. I don't think, he's, I don't think he you know, meant this part of the letter to go to somebody else. He says in verse 3, For you are still carnal. That's where your life is at. You see, some people say it's a contradiction in terms that Paul is saying that these carnal ones are not Christians at all, but he clearly calls them brethren, and he says they're babes in Christ. You see, here's the problem. These Christians, to some extent, are thinking and acting according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. Now, let me make something clear. Of course, it must be said that not every aspect of their life is dominated by the flesh. Do you know what you call a person whose every aspect of their life is dominated by the flesh? You don't call him a Christian because there's no evidence of regeneration in them. So Paul isn't trying to imply that every aspect of their life is dominated by the flesh. But Paul is addressing issues where they are clearly thinking and acting in a carnal that is a fleshly manner. By the way, you want a great primer on the carnal Christian? Read Romans chapter 7. That's what the life of the carnal Christian is like. Now, Paul goes on here, and in talking about them in the sense of being carnal, he's spoken to us about three categories of men. There is the natural man who is patterned after Adam and rejects the things of the Spirit. There is the spiritual man who knows the things of God. And then there is the carnal man who knows the things of God, yet in some significant ways is still characterized by the flesh. Now, you know what I'm going to say right now. You know what I'm You say it for me. Which one are you? 
Are you a natural man? Are you a carnal man? Or are you a spiritual man or woman? And it's important that we be spiritual men and women of God. Because notice how Paul has to treat these carnal believers. Take a look at verse 2. He said, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you're still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am Apollos. Are you not carnal? In verse 2, Paul says, I fed you with milk. Paul kept teaching the Corinthians the basics, even though they had an inflated view of their own spirituality. They believed that they were ready for the deeper things. Come on, Paul, bring it on. Let's get past just this Jesus stuff. But you see, they weren't living any deeper in the basic things that Paul had already preached to them. Paul says, so I had to give you milk and not solid food. By the way, spiritually speaking, the difference between milk and solid food is one of degrees. It's not one of different kinds of doctrines. Friends, every doctrine that can be taught in a seminary can be taught in a Sunday school class. Just not in the same words and in the same technicality. There's not two gospels. There's not one gospel for the smart and one gospel for the simple. There's no part of the gospel that we're authorized to keep back from God's people. But you see, Paul says to them in verse 2, you were not able to receive it. It wasn't that God was preventing the Corinthians from receiving the solid food that Paul had to give them. The real problem was that the Corinthians were attracted to spiritual junk food based on man's wisdom and eloquence. The Corinthians were so filled with this spiritual junk food that they were not able to receive the spiritual solid food Paul wanted to give them. I've kind of noticed a phenomenon in my years of of being a pastor and of preaching. Uh, I've noticed different reactions under Christians who have been on a heavy diet of spiritual junk food. Now sometimes when Christians who are on a diet of spiritual junk food come to a place where the word of God is being taught, some of them are like, oh man, this is great. Oh man, I've been hungry for this for a long time. Oh, this is just what I've been wanting. And they're willing to put away the spiritual Twinkies and ding-dongs and all that other stuff, and I don't need it. I just want, I got the good food now. But I've seen other cases where Christians who have been addicted to spiritual junk food, they come and hear the good, plain, simple teaching of the Word of God, and they don't want it. They're not able to receive it. It's like their spiritual taste buds are so conditioned to spiritual junk food, that's all they have a taste for. If it's not real sugary, so to speak, they don't want it. My friend, that's not how we should be. Now he goes on to talk about the evidence of their carnality. Again, in verses 3 and 4, he says, There's envy and strife and divisions among you. You're carnal. The Christians thought of themselves as spiritual, but all the divisions among them proved them to be carnal. Now, let's make it plain that divisions and envy and strife in a church body are not the only signs of carnality, right? There can be other signs than that, but these were the ones most evident among the Corinthians. The Corinthians didn't want to say that. They would say, oh, we're so spiritual, we're so right with God. Oh, they're stabbing their brother in the back and knifing the other one in the gut. Oh, we love the Lord so much. Stab, stab, knife, knife. Oh, we just, oh, thank you, Jesus. Stab, stab, knife, knife. Friends, when you're having problems in your human relationships, it points to a problem 
in your relationship with God. Can I just give you a, a beware? This is a shepherd's beware for you. Beware of those folks who bounce around from church to church to church and who never really settle down anywhere and are always telling you how much they're persecuted by all those other Christians. Now just, just put your flags up. I'm not saying automatically condemn them. I'm not saying, you know, pre budget. Have a little bit of discernment there. Because if somebody has a chronic problem getting along with other people in the body of Christ, a lot of times they'll want to act like me and God were this close. It's just all those Christians I can't get along with. But my friends, Paul says that's evidence of something that's not right in your walk with God. And so he goes on to say here, look at the end of verse 3. I love this. He says, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Now, Paul does not say that they were mere men. After all, they're saved, right? But he says, you're behaving like mere men. And you might say, well, what more can I do? I'm just a man. No, you're not just a man. You're born again by the Spirit of God. You have a higher principle at work in you. You have a higher life in you. God has every reason to expect more from you than he does from the sinner. Because you're not a mere man, a mere woman anymore. My friends, spiritual people are to walk in the Spirit. If they do otherwise, then they're worldly and they're called upon to stop being worldly. Remaining worldly is not one of the options. And then he goes on to say, For one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Listen, Paul and Apollos, Paul says, we're nothing. You're fighting over a bunch of nothings, he's saying. Listen, I have a different job than Apollos. I planted, Apollos watered. Christian workers have different jobs and they see different results, but God is the one who gets the work done. God gives the increase. Listen, let me tell you how I think it might have happened in the Corinthian church. Paul worked in the Corinthian church for more than a year and a half, laboring, working hard, preaching the gospel faithfully, the weakness, trembling, many tears. There he was. And you know what? He, he probably didn't see big results. Maybe, and I'm just guessing. Of course, this is all hypothetical. You know, remember to put that in that bin in your mind. I'm just trying to paint a picture here. Maybe when Paul left, there were 50 Christians in the city of Corinth that would get together for, for fellowship, and they felt we're just this small, weak, and battered band, you know, and, and Paul, well, leave you. And, and the church was there. The, the church was planted. It was there. It was, a, it was an active church. It was an existing church, but it just didn't have the, the size and the dynamism, you know, that, that, that Paul had seen in some other churches. So Paul leaves, and he goes, and then Apollos comes along. Apollos, he's dynamic. Apollos has a whole different style. You know, Paul was weak and fear and trembling. Apollos, it was just his person. Apollos was charismatic, man. He went there and just saw a sparkle in his eye, you know, a warmth in his voice. And it didn't make him less godly than Paul than that. I mean, that's the kind of guy Apollos was. And he came and he preached. And you know what? During the time Apollos was there, oh, the church grew. Wow. Wow. Now, can't you see people saying, I'm Apollos' man. Now, oh no, I'm one of Paul's guys. Well, I'm back to Peter. That's the right one. If I, oh, no, well, I'm of Jesus. And on and on and on. You see, my friends, Paul says, listen, it's no big deal. 
I did my work. I did the work God had me to do. I planted a seed. I planted it. You walk by after you plant a seed, you know, it doesn't look very impressive for a while, does it? You go out there and look every day. Did anything grow? Did anything grow? There it is, just one little seed in the ground. Well, what happened? Paul said, but I planted it. Apollos, now he watered. That's kind of more fun. You know, that's more to do. That's you know, planting. You just do it once, and then you look at the ground. But there, Apollos, he got to water. He got to do more. But you know, Paul didn't make that seed grow. Apollos didn't make that seed grow. God did. They did what they had to do. Somebody had to plant it. Somebody had to water. But my friends, when a farmer plants a seed, and when he waters it and fertilizes it, he does not really make it grow. The miracle of life within that seed makes it grow. All the farmer can do is provide the right environment for growth and trust in the miracle of life. Might I say I'm very aware of that as a pastor. I can't make any of you grow in the Lord. You want to dig in your heels and fold your arms and say, I'm going to be a stick in the mud for the Lord. I'm not growing. I can't do anything about it. But all I can do is provide the right kind of environment. Make sure there's lots of nurturing and, and, and the right kind of place where that seed can grow and prosper. And then, you know what? I'll be just straight with them. It's between you and the Lord. But Paul says, we did that. I think it's interesting as well because he talks about this division of labor in the body of Christ. He says, listen, uh, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. I think some people are frustrated because they want to water and God's told them to plant. Or they want to plant and God's told them to water. Others are frustrated because they want to make the increase happen, and only God can do that. <laughs> My friends, real fruitfulness in ministry happens when we are peacefully content with what God has called us to do. Verse 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. He says, listen, he who plants and he who waters are one. All these Corinthians, they wanted to divide among leaders. But what was funny was the leaders weren't divided. Paul wasn't going around at Apollos. And that Apollos, boy, he's slick. I don't trust him. Paul loved Apollos. They knew their ministries were different, but they loved one another. They were one. Now, even though all those ministries were one, Paul also recognizes that they'll be rewarded individually. Did you see that in verse 8? Listen, anybody who's ever done ministry or aspires to do ministry, you look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. See, they're all on the same team, right? That's an important point. It's silly to say, well, planting is what's really important. Those waterers are missing the boat. Or say, oh, watering, ooh, that's what God wants us to do. Those planters, they better get their priorities straight. The fact is that both planters and waterers are necessary. Both are needed. Both are working towards the same goal. All work together, but each one is rewarded individually. Reward is not given according to gifts. It's not given according to talent. It's not even given according to success. Reward is given, look at the end of verse 8 according to their own labor. Can I just tell you that God knows how to reward properly? You know, on earth, I think some ministers receive too much and other ministers receive too little reward. But God knows how to reward properly. So friends, what it takes is hard work. 
That's what God requires of anybody who would do ministry. You want to be in ministry? You want to serve? You want to be used of God? I've got two words for you. Hard work. Work at it hard and let God use you in a great way. Have a big vision. Don't look for how little you can skate by and still be used of the Lord. Work hard for the Lord. Young preachers used to ask G. Campbell Morgan the secret to his preaching success. This is what he said, quote, I always say to them the same thing. Work, hard work, and again work. God can use your labor and he will reward it. Because if you take a look at verse 9, this blows your mind. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. My friends, do you realize that God has given us the amazing opportunity to work with him? God's called you into partnership. Now, can I just tell you a little secret here? He doesn't need us. <laughs> you ever seen a, a dad out mowing the lawn? And the kids following behind in the bubble mower? You know, thinking he's doing something, you know, wow, I'm helping dad. Yeah, really he's just getting in dad's way. But dad says, no, come on, son, help me out. Is he helping? The, can the dad, the dad could do it all easier himself. But there's something special about that dad having that son help him and having a partnership there. My friends, on a far more extreme level, that's God's work in and through us. He doesn't need us, friends. But he lets us work with him for our benefit, not for his. And when you think about all the ways that God could have done his work, it's even more amazing to know that he wants our participation. So he goes on, verse 9, introduced the idea of the church being God's building. So he goes on to talk about it, verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. My friends, Paul says, I laid a foundation. When I founded the church in Corinth, I set it on the only foundation that can be laid, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I laid the foundation, but others come and build on it, right? Apollos was building on the foundation that Paul made, right? But Paul says, anybody who builds on that foundation better take care with how they build on it. By the way, the church only has one foundation, right? If the foundation isn't on Jesus Christ, you know what? It's not the church. But once it's built on that, once the foundation is there, then you see different works of God that are built in different ways. You see, my friends, God will test the building work of all of his fellow workers. Each one's work will become manifest. So some people build with precious things like gold and silver and precious stones. Other people build with unworthy materials like wood, hay, and straw. Now, when he says precious stones, he doesn't mean jewels, but like fine stone materials like marble and granite. And basically what Paul's saying is, listen, mixing the wisdom of men with the wisdom of God and the work of building the church, it's like building a building. Okay, you lay one course of stone, and now I'm going to lay a course of straw. And then another course of stone, and then a course of straw. 
My friends, it's not a worthy building. In the same way, human wisdom and fleshly attractions, well, they may have their place in life, right? I mean, there's a use for straw. Straw has a use. But not in the building of God's building. Not in the establishment of his church. Because, my friends, there's, there's more to think about than just right now, what works right now in the here and now. There's the judgment that we're going to have to answer for. Did, did you see that? Did you see it here in verse... He says it right there in verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. Fire will test everyone's work. When our work is tested by God, it's going to be revealed what kind of work it was. Now, you think of fire going through a building and It destroys the wood and the hay and the straw, right? But not the gold and the silver and the precious stones. Friends, I want you to notice something. Paul says here at the end of verse 13, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. God isn't going to test as much the amount of someone's work, although that has relevance, right? We're not going to say that's irrelevant. But more than the amount, God is testing what sort of work it is. If someone did a lot of the wrong kind of work, it'll be accounted as nothing. His work will be burned and it will vanish in eternity. My friends, it's a sobering thought, but many, many people who believe that they are serving God, but they're doing it in an unworthy manner, or they're doing it with unworthy materials, so to speak, they will come to find in eternity that in reality they've done nothing for the Lord. And they may be saved, but they'll be saved with a life that was wasted, and they'll receive no crown to give to Jesus. It says right there in verse 15, he himself will be saved, yet as so through the fire. And he goes on in verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. The temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now friends, when Paul says that you are the temple of God, in this context, He's talking collectively of the church. Now, it is true that each individual is the temple of God, and Paul will use that picture later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when he says, you are the temple of God, he means the church collectively is this building that God laid the foundation for and people are building on top of. And friends, what makes the church a temple, it's because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the point is clear. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy them. God's temple, His church, is holy. And it matters to God how we treat His holy temple. All right, let's get to the end of the chapter here, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age... Let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. 
And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. I think in verse 18, Paul's being a little sarcastic. You know, the Corinthians probably prided themselves on how wise they were, how deep they were in spiritual things. And Paul says, hey, if there's anybody wise out there, then let him be willing to be a fool in this age. Friends, if you're wise, you're going to be willing to become a fool in the sight of this world. He asks them to renounce all worldly wisdom, even if it means being considered a fool by those who only value human wisdom. Because if they don't do that, they'll never be able to become wise. Friends, God has evaluated the wisdom of this world, and he considers it foolishness, he considers it craftiness, and he considers it futile, as Paul says in those verses. The bottom line is, are we going to agree with God's evaluation or not? Now, finally, it says, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours. You see, this is kind of the irony behind their fighting. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. You know what? All things are yours. You don't have to fight over Paul. He belongs to all of you. You don't need to fight over Apollos. He, he belongs to all of you. All things are yours. See, the whole universe is yours in Christ. Did you see that in verse 22? Friends, the world, the life, even death is yours in Christ. Let me tell you, my friends, death is ours. You own it. I'm telling you right now, you own it. It doesn't own you. You own it. Death is your servant. Death is going to be that means that rushes you into glory. You own it. It's yours. It's gone, baby. It's defeated. You don't serve it. It serves you. Paul says, oh, All things are yours. My friends, at the end, Paul gives us two great measures here. He lets us know that Christian liberty is all about this. All things are yours. Isn't that great Christian liberty? Yeah, all things are mine. All things are mine. You think, all right, man, I'm going to go out of here and I can do anything I want, right? I'll stop by that bar on the way home. I'll, you know, watch whatever I want to do it. Hey, all things are mine, right? Well, that's one side of it. Take a look at the other side in verse 23. And you are Christ. My friends, if you will really remember that you are Christ's, then all things are yours. The two go together. That's Christian liberty, and it's Christian responsibility.